You are entering the Freedom Hut. 4.4 million new unemployment claims. Rachel Maddow gloats over her perception that hydroxychloroquine has failed. Should states be allowed to go bankrupt? The progressive transformation agenda behind much of this. When was the first U.S. COVID-19 case? Trump disagrees with Governor Kemp on Georgia. An update on Sweden's path. And Stacey Abrams as Biden's VP coming up. Buck Sexton. Permission. Decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One small Make no mistake. America. Great. You're a great American. Again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. I can speak for three hours without a phone call. Try doing that sometime. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Appreciate you being here with me. Uh, It doesn't feel like we are making, as a nation, the progress at this point that I know many of us were hoping for. It does not feel like we are as near the end of this as we would have liked. That's for sure. I mean, and that's given the models. That's given what we had been told. We're seeing the curves bent. We're seeing the, the beginning of the reopening, and yet... Now there's all of this, uh, you know, this this additional news about how there's going to be a second wave and how we're going to have to live this way perhaps forever. And, you know, people are really there seems to be a a group out there who is incentivized to produce as, as much gloom and doom as possible in the media and in the Democratic Party every day, whatever they can do to make everyone think that we are stuck And all we should do is just sit down, shut up, and listen to the experts. I got news for them. The the economy's falling apart. It is falling apart around us right now. We cannot continue to do this. I keep saying it because we need to remember that. The, oh, there's all these bad things out there and we can't go outside. I'm outside every day in New York City. So every time I have some smug lib come at me online, I want to say, shut up. I'm having to deal with the same risks that people in New York City are dealing with here every day. I'm actually leaving my house. I'm going grocery shopping. I'm walking the dog, doing all these things. And I do not accept that we're all going to live life like hermits for the next 18 months because we're not going to have a country left if we do this for another six months, maybe even another three months. I I don't know what the real prognosis is for the economy. Uh, And I I mentioned yesterday, I do want to return to it today, and I didn't give it at the top of the show. The U.N. is predicting that there will be, because of the collective global economic meltdown that we're all going through, they're, they're predicting there will be famines, that there will be large numbers of people on the brink of or actually starving to death as a result of the government lockdowns. Will, will they be counted in our calculus? Will they, can, can we start to think about what that means for the rest of the world? The people that are going to get the hardest hit by this are those who don't have the ability to make choices to go flee to a second home, who don't have the ability to just stay in their spacious, in their spacious, you know, either air conditioned or heated home with Netflix and a plush couch and all the food they could ever want to eat. People that are going to suffer the worst are those who have the least say in how the elites are telling us this has to be dealt with. 4.4 million new unemployment claims. We're going to be at over 30 million out of a job by next week, over 30 million people. It's a huge number. And I think that there's also a, an unwillingness to grapple 
with what's going to happen to a lot of other people that do have jobs, and this includes folks in media. This is going to include people that are currently part of the very loud lockdown consensus. Uh, with this, with the slowdown across the board, you're going to see companies that even once we start going back to business, they're not going to have the same revenues. They're going to have to shed jobs. It's not like we go back and all of a sudden everything is, you know, up and running, and we have all these. Uh, all these this headwind at our back that's going to push the economy forward. That's not what's going to happen. There's going to be a lot of economic pain to work through the moment that we start allowing for greater economic activity. Then there are going to be decisions made. Okay, well, now our revenue as a company, let's say, is down 30% or 50%. Can we make it to the end of the year like this? We can go to, we can go to the office, but can we make it to the end of the year like this? Maybe not. Maybe you have to fire a lot more people. It's going to get much worse. Now, I have been an optimist as much as one can be under these circumstances all along. And I, and I remain an optimist. And I do think that we're going to see certain states that are opening up sooner handle this okay. It's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be perfect. But there are going to be states that have opened up sooner and are doing better than was anticipated by, by the, the critics. We need to think of a word for people who every time anybody has some encouraging i wouldn't even necessarily say it qualifies as fully good news because a lot of the time it's hopefulness oh we'll talk about their response to that one study from the va about use of hydroxychloroquine that i talked to you about yesterday uh their response to any hopefulness about this situation is to downplay it to ignore it or or to, to bring up the the counter narrative of well that may be a good thing, but think about all these other terrible things or that's not really a good thing. We don't know if that's a good thing. Uh, they just they want to live in misery and lockdown for as long as possible. I mean, I, I wonder what the what the impetus is uh, for this. Right. It, I'm not talking about even at the decision making phase of what should we do? I just mean, oh, I, and I saw this news story. It looks like there may be there might be this this drug that could be helpful. And inevitably, people will come after you. And we all live in this increasingly online world because we don't get to see each other. So I feel like there's more activity online, more communication online, at least feels that way to me than ever before. And they'll come after you. Well, why are you giving people false hope? I'm not giving false hope. I'm just saying, here's a drug, here's a drug study that says maybe this will work. Can't we all sit around and say, wow, that would be nice if that would work. Let's see what the results are. You know, it's important psychologically for people on the left. We remember hope, right? Hope and change. This is what we were told. That's all you needed to know. Hope and change. Vote for Obama. But now hope is to be stifled. It's to be pushed aside. It's to be shut down like the rest of things. Everything shut down. Why is that also a political decision? I don't mean the shutdown. I mean the suppressing, uh, suppressing, <laughs> pardon me, the suppressing of hope. Why is that a political thing? I think we, we, we know the answer. You know the answer. I don't have to tell it to you, but we're not supposed to start saying that yet. We can't talk about the political implications of this and the psychosis of the left and its view that Donald Trump is going to destroy our democracy. If, if they really believe that, and they've been saying it nonstop for years, as you know, and a threat to world peace, a threat to our democracy, uh, well, then what price are they not willing to pay to make sure that he doesn't lead the country for another four years? I think we're starting to see that the answer is there's really no price that they're unwilling to pay. They'll do, they'll do whatever they have to do, whatever they have to say. And it's troubling because we all should be united in this. And yet 
I I can't I can't have anyone explain to me. I, I haven't had a a worthwhile defense of why is it that if you are a left wing Democrat in particular, you find the most negative view of everything in this story all the time. The drugs don't work. Uh, social distancing isn't enough on its own. We need lockdown. Lockdown as long as possible. Don't leave your home. Nothing changes until there's a vaccine. Why should that coincide with one's politics? We know. And it's troubling to see that there's now a, a pushback from some of the people making decisions because they realize now now it's really in their hands, right? Before it was, oh, nobody knew what was coming. Nobody knew what was happening. Now it's, okay, we have more data. We've seen this beast that is COVID-19. We understand the monster we face. So what are we going to do about it? Well, here's, for example, Governor Cuomo, who I, I, I when I saw this clip initially, I thought, wow, this guy, he's every bit as bad as I always thought he was. Hasn't, hasn't changed a bit. Play clip one, Mark. I don't know if you can hear, but there are protesters outside right now honking their horns and raising signs. We did speak to a few of them before we came in, and these are regular people who are not getting a paycheck. Some of them are not getting their unemployment check, and they're saying that they don't have time to wait for all of this testing, and they need to get back to work. Yeah. What is your response to them? The illness is death. What is worse than death? Well, what if somebody commits suicide because they can't pay their bills? Yeah, but the illnesses may be my death as opposed to your death. You said they said the cure is worse than the illness. The illness is death. How can the cure be worse than the illness if the illness is potential death? What if the, what if the economy failing Worse than death? Is equals death. Very for, because no, of mental it, illness, the people, no, the people stuck at home. No, it doesn't. It doesn't equal death. Economic hardship, yes, very bad. Not death. Is there a fundamental right to work if the government can't get me the money when I need it? Is there yeah, a fundamental go, by the way, right you want to go to work? work? Go take a job as an essential worker. Do it tomorrow. Stunning, isn't it? This is the person who has the most direct authority over the worst hit part of the United States with COVID-19. Governor Andrew Cuomo, you hear what he's saying? The alternative is death. Well, no, it's actually the, the alternative is an infection that's already spread to. I, I'm going to I'm going to say this now. This is a prediction. And since predictions apparently don't matter when you're wrong, why not make as many of them as possible, right? The IHME models that we were all told about, totally wrong. Disastrously, shockingly, absurdly wrong. Oh, 2 million people will die. Actually, it's 250,000. Actually, it's 50,000. Or now they're say, they were saying 60,000, whatever the, whatever the number may be. Um, I, I'll make a prediction that I think we'll find that about uh, close to a million people in New York City have been exposed to this. And already have some, and already have uh, some form of antibodies. I think I think that's going to be what happens based on the serology testing we've already seen. I'm not just pulling that number out of thin air. It's at least three or four. I mean, they have 150,000 cases already. So if unless you think we're catching all of the cases that are out there, knowing that about 50 percent of the cases by some studies are asymptomatic, uh, you know, if, if, how many are we really catching? And so you easily get close to a million people that have this disease. And that that brings up. All right. So realistically, what we're facing is something that kills less than one percent of the people who get it. 
somewhere now when you extrapolate even uh, 0.5% across a huge population, it's devastating. A lot of people will die. That's true. But it is not death for everyone at all. And to suggest that, to say that, well, then what are we what are we supposed to do, Governor Cuomo? Because the disease is not going away. So if our choices are lockdown or death, the choice is there is no choice. It's just lockdown. There's no way that we could ever reopen until we have a cure for this thing. And I'm not sitting around placing large bets on having a cure anytime soon, therapeutically or, or with a vaccine. We don't know. You know, part of the recognition that I think a lot of people are coming to now is that our massive you know, international and uh, you know, scientific community and researchers, and they don't really have a handle on this thing. And how, how impressive can it really feel when, when the entire world is shut down by something that either escaped from a lab in China or some guy who ate a bat in the Wuhan market, which I don't think is what happened, but that we're all shut down by this and, and no one can think of a way to beat this yet? You know, we have, we have supercomputers, we have space travel, we have, you know, we're all carrying around, uh, you know, telecommunication devices in our pockets that can show video to somebody on the other side of the planet instantaneously. We got all these, we can't figure out how to deal with this. It's, it's hard not to be disappointed. And I know that this is just a lay person's view of it. It's hard not to be disappointed. This is the best we've got so far in terms of a cure. This is where we are. But Governor Cuomo, I, I want to know how many other uh, Democrat governors are going to take the same approach, which is if you if you don't listen to what we're telling you, even though some of the stuff we're telling you is stupid and counterproductive, for example, outdoor transmission, there's more and more studies coming out that show outdoor transmission of this is negligible. That doesn't mean impossible, negligible. It's not a, not a risk that should concern anybody, you know, under normal circumstances. Yeah, you don't want to walk up to somebody and cough in their face, but outdoor transmission of this in normal circumstances is negligible. So we, we do what they say or we're going to die. This is what the governor of New York is saying. This is a false choice, and it's also starting to show the dangerous mindset of somebody who is a, a leftist, a statist, uh, they are, they're also working with an agenda here. They talk about it sometimes. We're not supposed to talk about it because they'd rather do it without us noticing. To use this crisis to transform the country, there are many ways that it's already happening. But do as I say or people will die. It's not just you. Remember, someone else might die. Do as I say or people will die. This is the ultimate, the ultimate false choice that can result in the complete revocation of all freedom. He's effectively telling you the state has decided that you you have no freedom anymore, because if that's really the choice, what is the state not allowed to do? The pushback, my friends, needs to be firm and needs to be united. We need to tell them, sorry, life has risk and our idiot leadership that couldn't prevent this and didn't know what they were doing during this does not get to indefinitely tell us do as I say or death. No. No, I, I will not. I will not comply. Man, I, I remember I remember hearing about the American spirit and we would all talk about how we have this individualism, this rugged individualism. You know, don't tread on me. Give me liberty or give me death. Governor Cuomo, it's do as I say or people die. It's not really much of a choice, is it? Fortunately, it's also not really true. And we'll be we'll be talking about that more on the show today. 
You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. I have an update already on what I said before. Uh, on, on April 20th, I, I tweeted out prediction with widespread serology testing for antibodies. We in New York City are going to find out that about a million of us have already had COVID-19 and didn't know it. Maybe closer to two million. That's a lot of people who are likely immune and can get back out there safely. Um, now, likely immune because we don't know if it has immunity. Though right now, SARS one. Remember, this is SARS CoV two is the the more technical name for it. Um, SARS CoV one. You we do know that you have at least two years of immunity if you were to get it. Uh, so the expectation would be that you would also have at least some period. And remember, if you got this and you're immune for two years, well, that would give you uh, that's obviously a lot better than the alternative. Um, but we we uh, producer Nick just in, in the in the pause we had there sent me the data from this morning. And it turns out Governor Cuomo and I just missed this right before we came on air. Governor Cuomo um, has the antibody study preliminary estimates and the weighted results out. And percent of uh, p- percent positive results for New York City. Well, for Long Island, it's 16 percent. Westchester, Rockland, 11 percent. New York City, 21.2 percent. Which means if you were to do so, one one fifth of New York City has based on the New York City testing results. As of as of today, has been exposed to this and therefore would have some level of antibodies to this. Most likely, we still don't know a lot about how the body responds, but that means if you do one fifth of eight point whatever, they're not even really sure what the number is, but let's let's call it you know eight point something million New Yorkers. You got well over a million people here, so the prediction was correct. I didn't even I mean, what I said to you before, and I. I you know, that's why I told you about the tweet. I've been saying this for a while. I didn't know that the, the preliminary data had just come out today. But yes, yeah, so we've got a million people. So he told us that it's it's stay home or death. But a million of us have had this a million people, according to the city's own figures. And a million people are obviously, thank God, not dead. So that's a false choice that he's offering. That's not a fair way to look at the problem. And the dismissiveness with which he refers to people who aren't essential workers what a jerk. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Most likely you never heard of this drug until last month when primetime Fox News hosts and then the president started incessantly promoting it on a daily, sometimes hourly basis as what they were quite sure uh, was a miracle cure for coronavirus. There's no big deal for this coronavirus thing. We've got a cure already. They promoted it despite zero clinical trials and next to no evidence of its effectiveness. Beginning in middle of March, Hydroxychloroquine was mentioned hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times on the Fox News channel, particularly by its primetime hosts, um, and by the president from the White House podium. Uh, until about a week ago, when those mentions by Fox News and by the president just dropped off a cliff, they just stopped bringing it up. Uh, and we don't know why that is. Uh, but yesterday, we did get the results of a new study, which has yet to be peer reviewed, but is the largest to date involving the use of hydri- hydroxychloroquine among uh, 368 veterans in veterans hospitals across the U.S. Uh, in that trial, the drug was found to have 
no benefit, and there were actually more deaths reported among those who were given that drug than those who were given standard care. The authors of the study said, quote, these findings highlight the importance of awaiting the results of ongoing prospective randomized controlled studies before widespread adoption of these drugs. Yeah, you think? Congrats to uh, Rachel Maddow. It must be really satisfying for her to know that maybe this drug doesn't work as well as was hoped for. And therefore, many more people will be dying from COVID-19 than would have had these trials been successful. Yeah, way to go. Blame it on Fox News. Blame it on Trump. Uh, I, I just this morning spoke to a doctor who is at a large Brooklyn hospital. They still have patients on hydroxychloroquine. You know why? Some of them, it seems to help. And you know what the alternative is to hydroxychloroquine? Nothing. Nothing. What are these people doing? What is Rachel Maddow's problem? Why is hydroxychloroquine a political issue? Because Trump, Trump's not the only one. Governor Cuomo was was touting it too because there's nothing else you know if i tell you that you're going to go into a a duel with somebody and i'm going to give you a pistol and you don't know if that pistol is loaded or not but i can either give you a pistol or you can go in barehanded and see how you do are, are you gonna are you gonna take the pistol it's that straightforward it's that clear but they all pretend like they don't they don't understand what's going on oh no Trump is lying. I mean, I saw, you know, fake Tapper yesterday tweeted out something about how you can't sharpie a drug into being safe. The drug is safe, you idiot. Millions and millions and millions of people have taken it and still take it. No drug is perfect. But what's the alternative? What is the alternative? The why is this a left right issue? It's about a drug that can save lives. No one said that you know is being called out here from Fox or no one said it's a cure. We're done. Great. Trump certainly never said that. He said, look, I'm hopeful. I've seen some good things. Are, are they rooting against it? What is their problem? It's still being used. This study is not a good study, the one that they have cited. It is not a better study than the ones that have shown that it does work. There are people who have taken it who have gotten better. Do they get better because of the drug? We don't know. But the doctors who are actually treating people on this and, and putting people on it, you tell them, don't do this. And, and they'll look at you like, I'm, we're trying to save lives here. What's, why wouldn't we do this? And as I've told you, and this is what the medical, the people that are actually using this drug, it may in fact be, there's an article in The Lancet, a British medical journal, it may be the case that you need to take it as a prophylaxis, which is going to become very complicated because who needs to take it for how long? But it would be very good for medical workers if they found this out. People that are at very high risk of exposure, if it's a if it's an effective prophylaxis, because you can take it for long periods of time for malaria prophylaxis, uh, prophylaxis, you might be able to do the same uh, here. But again, we don't know. The docs that I'm talking to are saying that it may be an issue of timing. It also may be a combination with other drugs. You know, there's this azithromycin and zinc and some of these other things that people have been using with some success but but more to the point are, are they claiming and this is this is where you really have to push on the mad owls and the tappers and the fake jerk news out there uh are, were, are doctors at major new york hospitals who are dealing with people who are who are dying every day hundreds and hundreds of them are they giving out hydroxychloroquine because trump mentioned in a press conference think about how demeaning that is
You think these these medical professionals go, oh, well, Donald Trump mentioned it, so we're just going to give it to people. No, it's just cleared for use if the doctor thinks it's worthwhile. Do you know why doctors in New York hospitals are using hydroxychloroquine? Not all of them, but there there are a lot of doctors who have been using hydroxychloroquine with COVID-19 patients. Because other doctors in Europe have said that they have seen some early success with it and were trying to save as many lives as possible. Are those European doctors that have been using it since the beginning uh, or since the middle of March? Are, are they doing it because of Trump and Fox News? These people are morons that are telling you this. Okay, they're, they're not helpful. In fact, they're the opposite of helpful. They're making things worse because their brains have been so polluted with political hatred. First and foremost, you know, if, if you told me that we could cure, if we could cure COVID-19 tomorrow, but Trump would lose the election, you know what? I'd say we got to cure COVID-19 tomorrow. That's the moral choice. That's how I feel about it. If we could save all these lives, save all these people, all the ventilators and all the other people that are going to be getting sick and what happens in the fall, I, I have to wonder with some of these Democrats, some of these leftists, if it was we could cure COVID-19 tomorrow, but Joe Biden would lose where would they come down on that one? Where, where would they come down on that? I don't know. I think I, I have to ask where Brad Stelter is over at CNN and he's, he's crying into his pillow because he's really upset. Yeah, dude, we're all, you know, we're all going through a lot of stress. We're all upset. You don't have to go on TV and talk about how you're crying into your pillow at night because the world is upside down. We get it. Uh, but Jeff Zucker told me I could. Uh, uh here he is doing the same, the same dance about how hydroxychloroquine is uh, some kind of right wing. You know, you want to talk about conspiracies. They're the ones that are acting like it's a conspiracy. Play the uh, the Stelter clip, please. Yes. And the millions of Americans who use this drug for approved purposes, including my wife, people who have autoimmune issues and need this drug, became worried they wouldn't be able to get it because of the drug pushing that was happening on Fox News and from the White House podium. You know, we have, the president yesterday was asked about this new study and he said he hadn't seen the report. And that may be because Fox News is barely talking about it because it doesn't fit the narrative that was being promoted in late March and early April. But recently, Fox has moved on. They've stopped talking about this drug and the, the hope that it could be beneficial. They've moved on to other quick fixes and other pro-Trump narratives. You know, this network, these stars, they think they're helping the president, but they're actually hurting him when they push these narratives. And ultimately, they're misleading their viewers, and that's why it is so troubling. Why would we ever think a Fox News star or any president should be promoting a drug? It's outlandish. What's outlandish is how deranged and stupid and infantile Stelter is and his colleagues at CNN. I mean, CNN really is is a, is a, a blight on America at this point. Uh, the, the, the same way that I felt about Gawker, which for those of you who maybe remember, Gawker was this tabloid website that weaponized wokeness before we were even really calling it wokeness, but also really reveled in the destruction of reputations and lives in the most public and humiliating way possible and, and overwhelmingly against, I mean, if they could get you and you're a conservative, that was their favorite thing. They, they did to a lot of people, but if they could, if they could destroy you and you were in any way somebody that stood for something and you were associated with the right and with, with virtue and morality and decency, aspiring to those things, I'm not saying exemplifying those things because we on the right actually have principles. We don't necessarily always meet them, but we do have them. The left, it's just power. 
uh, they would destroy people, and there was a glee in the destruction of of human uh, human beings. And that was one of the great things was when Peter Peter Thiel, one of the great things that he accomplished, uh, you know, the PayPal guy, was funding the lawsuit to destroy Gawker. CNN is is in that same now category of moral rot, and and uh, I, I think just complete dishonor. It's become a problem for this country. And look, they're allowed. I'm not saying that, oh, the law shut them down or something, but p- people of, of goodwill and good faith should no longer watch that channel. And I used to work there. It's gotten a lot worse. It's gotten crazy. You know, I was an opposition voice, uh, voice inside that building. Now there are no opposition voice. Now it's just the lunatics are running everything. And if you deviate from the narrative, you're done. And it's, it's really horrific. Think about what, what Stelter was, was saying here, though. You know, he's giving it all away. This is a pro-Trump narrative. Hydroxychloroquine working is a pro-Trump narrative. You, that, that's like psychotic. There are, this is known. There are doctors all over the New York City area who give this. I just spoke to an infectious disease doctor yesterday. I walked you through what he told me about this trial. And they're, they're still figuring out, you know, maybe some people get too sick too fast for the drug to take effect. Maybe it has to be given as a prophylaxis early before you show any real uh, symptoms that, that have gone into the lungs, they're, they're figuring, you know, and, and when you go to the hospital has been determining when you get the hydroxychloroquine here. And some people wait too long to go to the hospital. That is already established. I was just going through. There's a, over 3000 patients. They crunched the numbers uh, from a major hospital system. I've got the data. I tweeted it out looking at comorbidities. Obesity and hypertension are the two biggest concerns other than age. Age is number one, and then obesity and hypertension are right behind it. And then there's a whole bunch of other comorbidities that make the, the fight against this disease much harder for individuals. But the, the doctors, it, it's, think about this. It's really a slap in the face. We're always hearing about how, oh, you know, everyone, uh, everyone supports our medical community so much. I do, you do, but do the people that are saying that these doctors were prescribing this drug to patients based on nothing? based on wishful narratives of Fox News hosts. New York is like nine to one lib. You think New York doctors are treating people with hydroxychloroquine because Trump mentioned it on TV? This is what's being, I'm playing the clips for this, Maddow and Stelter. These people are a disgrace. We're in a war, and if they're not rooting for the enemy to win sometimes, I want to know what they think they're doing. We all know who the enemy is here a virus that is ravaging our society and destroying our economy. And we can't be unified on this. This is now just so political. Well, like I said, you know, Trump used to call CNN, they call the fake news the enemy of the people. The CNN's the enemy of the people these days. I, I don't know how else to say it. I don't know what else to, or, or we could call it the enemy of truth, perhaps, as I have said in the past. But that the their their take on the hydroxychloroquine situation is just it's just pathetic and it's wrong and it's Trump derangement syndrome making decisions for them. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. We are continuing to see declines in all the major metro areas around the country that have been most impacted. But numbers remain low and steady on the West Coast, in Washington State and in California. But the New York metro area, New Jersey, Connecticut, all appear to be past their peak. Uh, and as uh, 
as our scientists may reflect in a few moments, we also are seeing the positive rate going down, uh, which is actually even as encouraging as the declining cases. The Detroit metro area appears to be past its peak. The Seattle metro area, as I mentioned, remains stable. New Orleans metro area is the most stable of all the large metro uh, outbreaks. Um, uh, we also are continuing to see uh, stabilization and even declines in, uh, in Houston and Atlanta and Nashville and Baltimore and Indianapolis and elsewhere. This is a tribute to the American people, uh, to the fact that the American people have taken to heart uh, the guidelines. So there is good news, and I think it's worth hearing it there from Vice President Pence, who's been a very, a very steady voice and a, and a calming but commanding presence during this crisis. Uh, I remember in the early days when there was all this mockery that Pence would be coordinating the task force, as if people don't understand what coordinating means. It means putting leadership in charge and in, in touch with other leadership and making sure that everyone has the resources and the authorities that they need to do what they need to do. No one's pretending that Mike Pence was all of a sudden the expert on this issue. And uh, there's a whole, there's some fascinating stuff, and maybe I'll have time to go into it today, about what the experts have said in the early days, in the early days of pandemics in the past, the, uh, the numbers that they were expecting to die from it, and, and, and what ended up really happening, and how much in the early days was wrong. Um, the people that keep telling you to listen to the experts don't know what listening to the experts has actually meant in previous decades. I'm, I'm not going to talk about 100 years ago. I'm talking about 10 years ago, five years ago. So you also have this line that, that they're going to continue to repeat because it's it's almost a cultural thing for Democrats to believe, you know, they they think the science is with them. You know, the science is on their side and they believe in science. And that's how you get things like this, where Joe Biden is telling people. He says something this monumentally stupid while the economy, which is what I want to focus more on in the next hour, while, while the economy is in just the worst shape since the Great Depression, where it is right now, the worst shape since the Great Depression. But we're only supposed to hear from Fauci. Who thinks that this is an intelligent thing to say? Oh, Joe Biden, when he remembers where he is, he thinks this is smart. Play six. But if we do this in a slow motion way that is consistent with the scientists, listen, look, we'd all be better off if for the next month and a half, the only person we heard from the White House was Dr. Fauci. Yeah, I'm serious. I mean, to the scientists, that's we have to go. Listen to the science. This is a false choice to say we're either going to have an economy or we're going to be healthy. You're not going to have an economy if you're not healthy. Just just listen to listen to scientists. Yeah. That's 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 what Joe Biden, you know, yeah, just listen to the scientists and the people who keep saying you're not going to have a, a, an economy until you beat the disease or if the disease continues. There is no path forward. There is no path forward that does not involve continued risk from this disease, including the current lockdown. We have some people who are out there and God bless them, frontline workers, frontline medical personnel. You know, we have essential workers and frontline medical personnel. I think that's the preferred terminology, you know, and, and they, by the way, the, the truckers who listen to this program and I love you guys. Every time, every time we bring up truckers, I get a bunch of awesome messages from from Team Buck truckers. So uh, and gals, by the way, I know there's some lady truckers who listen to. So I want to say thank you so much for uh, 
always being it, it honestly it motivates us to know that we're we're keeping you company during long hauls bringing food to the likes of me and producer mark and millions of others thanks for listening to the bus sex and show podcast remember to subscribe on apple podcast the iheart radio app or wherever you get your podcasts some of the governors have done a fantastic job working with us i told the governor of georgia brian kemp that i disagree strongly with his decision to open certain facilities which are in violation of the phase one guidelines for the incredible people of georgia they're incredible people i love those people they are they're great they've been strong resolute but at the same time he must do what he thinks is right i want him to do what he thinks is right Uh, but i disagree with him on what he's doing, but I want to let the governors do. Now, if I see something totally egregious, totally out of line, I'll do. But I think spas and beauty salons and tattoo parlors and barber shops in uh, phase one, we're going to have phase two very soon. It's just too soon. I think it's too soon. President Trump, who has been trying to move the country toward a more open status for the economy, saying here that he thinks Georgia's moving too fast. Now, I've seen a lot of back and forth on this one, even from some conservatives who were saying, well, hold on a second. Now now the president is telling a a Republican governor who wants to open up his his state uh, that he's moving too fast? Well, they put out the guidance, and and I understand, too, it seems like there's, there's mixed messages here. In fact, there's some very... Very clever social media uh, videos going around. One in particular, I think, was uh, making the rounds on Twitter where people are saying, why is anyone confused? And then they go through all the different conflicting guidance about how to handle this, because we have gotten a lot of conflicting guidance. But in this particular case, the president is saying that there's a violation of I should the violation might be too strong, but they're not in keeping with. The phase one guidelines yet in Georgia, so they may be moving too fast. You know, my friends, we will see. We will see what ends up being true here because the economic devastation, you know, we're, we're going through a period where unless you don't have a job and don't have savings, you cannot really understand what that's like. What, what's, what's going on for people that have those circumstances that are supposed to push through that right now? I mean, I'm... It's it's just I can't imagine, honestly, it's because we don't know when the economy is really going to come back on and what's going to happen even when even when it does. There could be further layoffs. There's a lot of of debt and a lot of financial stuff that's going to need to be cleared up and cleared out. And industries may never be the same. I mean, I got to tell you this. I wouldn't want to be the owner of a commercial real estate building in New York City right now. There are going to be a lot of big, expensive leases for office space getting signed, right? I mean, maybe. Maybe some people are figuring it's all going to go back to normal sooner than later, but I just feel like the the change in, in, in anyone who is getting really used to working from home and see, sees what their productivity is really like, I, I don't know how fast they're going to want to move back, even if they could safely, entirely safely. I'm not sure how quickly they'd want to move back to an office environment. I mean, I'll be honest, I hate office environments, so... It's one of the reasons why I work in media, because I show up and do a show and then I go home. I don't sit at a desk. I'm not. It's one of the things I like most about this job. Now, that was involving studios and travel and it wasn't staying home all day. But 
I'm not somebody who likes to spend, and I've done it before, 9, 10, 11, sometimes 12 hours a day in an office environment. It's not my thing. Uh, but the, the situation of Georgia is going to be instructive for all of us. Because he, here's what does not get talked about very much these days. The Swedish model is working. Sweden is okay. I saw two weeks ago, uh, I was seeing all these pieces. Sweden is heading for disaster. Sweden is going to be falling apart, you know. And I said, look, they're either going to learn a very painful lesson, I suppose, or they're going to show that the total panic response of shut down, shut everything down, stay home, don't go outside unless you absolutely have to, that that wasn't really necessary. Well, Sweden is, in fact, and I also keep hearing people say, oh, the other, I looked at the numbers on this one. The, 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 uh, the story that you'll hear is that the other, um, the other people, uh, the other states, rather, in, in the neighborhood, the other countries, Denmark, Finland, are doing so much better than they are. And it turns out that that's not, when you look at it on a per capita basis, that's not really true. That's not the case. That it's pretty close. And Sweden has allowed people to continue. Think about what America would be like right now if stores were still open, bars were still open, restaurants were still open, and you're allowed to go to your place of work. And you're allowed to go outside. Unrestricted outside travel. Seniors are under much more strict quarantine controls because we know this disease is particularly bad for seniors. It's particularly dangerous for our seniors. But uh, the, the rest of the society is able to keep things going, which means a more robust economy, doctors and nurses getting paid, materiel and, and research continuing to get funded for all of this, people not worried about paying their bills quite the same way, and, and having a healthy society economically is very important for having a healthy society um, in general, right? For having people who are healthy with, within your, uh, in, in your country. And, you know, you look at the, the numbers. For, I'm trying to find this. There's a, oh, here we go. This is from CNBC. Sweden resisted a lockdown and its capital, Stockholm, is expected to reach herd immunity in weeks. CNBC piece, just, just this morning. Unlike its neighbors, Sweden did not impose a lockdown. The strategy aimed at building a broad base of immunity while protecting at-risk groups like the elderly that was considered controversial. Sweden's chief epidemiologist, Sweden's Dr. Fauci, has said herd immunity could be reached in Stockholm within weeks. Now, you're going to see a lot of people say, oh, but, you know, herd immunity, you need 90%. No, herd immunity at 90% means the disease is completely eradicated. Herd immunity at 60% means that transmissibility has slowed considerably and a lot of people are able to just go around not worrying about it. It means your likelihood of a major outbreak, you know, a pandemic outbreak, I should say, is much, much smaller. You know, so, yes, you, you herd immunity from, uh, from measles, which we don't want any, you know, in the United States, we can get to a place where you have basically zero cases of that, right? Well, that, that requires about a 90, 95% inoculation rate. And then if you have a few people here and there who don't get it, but then, as, as we know, people that don't like vaccines, and I'm not, I'm not trying to have that discussion now. I'm just telling you what the epidemiological research says. Good heavens, you talk about vaccines, and all of a sudden your inbox is nothing but vaccine stuff. Um, but here, herd immunity just means that they're getting to a place where they're not worried about pandemic outbreak uh, or an epidemic in the case of within the borders of Sweden, right? Epidemic is considered a slightly less 
a slightly less extreme outbreak of the disease than a pandemic. But they're even able to withhold that from happening just by having about 60% of the population that does not ha- that has had it and doesn't have to worry about getting it again. So, you know, wh- what happens with this now? I saw all these people that were very sure about this. Oh, Sweden is heading for disaster. Sweden is heading for disaster. No, it's not true. That's not what ended up being the case. So we should ask, why is that true? Here you go. The number of cases in Sweden is almost double that in neighboring Denmark. It has 8,108 cases as reported and 370 deaths. And Finland, with just over 4,000 cases and 141 deaths, that impose strict lockdown measures. But since their populations are each about 5 million, half of Sweden's, the rates are about the same. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I'm a little, I'm a little, I was a little annoyed with myself on this because I kept having, you know, the Twitter, the Twitter ankle biters coming after me. Me, 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 me. Not as good as Finland. Not as good as Darren. Me, 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 me. I'm just trying to say, look, and again, why are people rooting against there being a better way? This would be better for if Sweden works. That's good for humanity. That's good for everybody. So can't we look at this without it being a it's not a, you know, Trump anti-Trump thing. It's a can we have our lives back thing a little bit more, a little bit more, not entirely. Sweden has, you know, Sweden has restrictions on the number of you know, they shut down. Uh, they've shut down. I, wait, have they shut down schools? Hold on to that. I got to figure that one out. But they have restrictions on the size of gatherings. They have uh, seniors. Um, you know, under lockdown. I mean, there are things that they're doing. They know less people in restaurants, less people in bars. They're not, you know, people are covering their their mouths with masks and stuff. They're not saying, yeah, it's a free for all. They're just not saying we're going to we're going to stop society for a couple of months. Just stop it. Everyone stay home. That's the lockdown that we're doing here. What? But people are coming after me saying, oh, no, but look at Finland and look at Denmark. And I thought that they must have meant per capita because that's the only comparison that matters. No, it turns out on a per capita basis, Sweden and Finland's about the same. So so what are we to take from this on a per capita analysis of two societies that are very, very similar that are operating on the same timeline of virus exposure? Let's say Sweden and Denmark, just to make this a little bit, you know, geographically even closer, Sweden and Denmark. And when you look at a per capita, there was oh, Sweden schools are open. Thank you, producer Mark. That was what I thought. They didn't shut the schools, folks. It's a huge thing here in New York. There's hundreds of thousands of kids in the public school system. They're locked in at home. They don't. And especially if they're younger, they're like what the heck is going on here? The the risk to people under 20 statistically is. I mean, it's not zero from this disease, but it's close, man. It is very small. So we shut down all the schools. You know, we couldn't find enough teachers under the age of 40 who wanted to, you know, keep uh, and look, I know it would have been hard and everything else. But so schools are open in Sweden. They didn't shut down the schools and they're reopening schools in other European countries that have been hit really hard. But we do have a control group now. We have Sweden. And we have Denmark. Denmark went with the full on lockdown. Sweden did not. They're in the same position. So now that we know this. Why am I always being told that the lockdown was entirely necessary and we couldn't have taken the approach of Sweden? Okay, Sweden has less comorbidities than we do. I mean, we we can have conversations about this, but hold on a second. Sweden and Denmark doesn't have a lot of comorbidities that Sweden doesn't have. These are very similar societies, demographically, health wise, age wise, culturally. So, you know, this would be like saying you have 
you know, New Hampshire and Vermont and New and this is I'm just giving a hypothetical, of course. But if you had, you know, New Hampshire had a total shutdown and Vermont had like the less extreme, you know, still maintaining you know, businesses open, and everything else. And they ended up in the exact same place case wise per capita when you when you average it up per capita. Well, then isn't the less extreme lockdown model better? Someone needs to explain to me why that's not the case. And also why everyone was why everyone was proclaiming before they knew that Sweden was a disaster. I mean, I just it's from this morning. It's CNBC saying, yeah, the Swedish the Swedish government's like we're doing well, actually, with this thing. It's tough, but we're getting through it. And they didn't spend four trillion dollars and shut down their whole economy for a couple of months. My friends, what the heck are we doing here? You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. I'd love everything open because okay. I think we've had uh, viruses for years so that, that have been here. You're, you're, I mean, you're talking about encouraging hundreds of thousands of people to come to Las Vegas. Back. I get the, the financial yeah. losses people are suffering, which is awful. But you're encouraging, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people coming there in casinos, smoking, drinking, touching slot machines, breathing circulated air, and then returning home to states around America and countries around the world. Doesn't that sound like a virus petri dish? I mean, how is that? You know what it sounds like? You're being an alarmist. I'm not. I've lived a long life. I grew up in the heart of Manhattan. I know what it's like to be with subways and on buses and crammed into elevators. I think you are by saying what you have just said. So you don't believe there should be any social distancing? You don't believe that this is Of course I believe there should be. Of course. I'm a How do you do that in a casino? That's up to them to figure out. I'm, I don't own a casino. But no, notice how this is what you get. And, of course, there's CNN again. Notice how this is what you get. The moment that you say, well, we don't want to do the extreme lockdown, they say, so you don't want to do anything? No. And even this mayor in Las Vegas is saying, that's not what I'm saying. Right? The, the Sweden model is not everybody run around and hug and kiss and dance in big circles and go to huge events and, you know, all drink out of the same cup. And of course not. Right. We're not morons, but it's all about gauging the response. You know, there's a more extreme response uh, response than even we've done here. I mean, you look, there's videos in China where they've just had another outbreak in a northern city, I would note. But we, we could have the government come and and, uh, you know, put people not just in their homes, but lock them in their homes, right? We could have uh, people soldering the door shut so that you can't leave. You're stuck inside, and they'll come out and get you in a few weeks when they feel like it, right? That's a more, that's what China did. That's even more extreme than what we did. So there's clearly levels here, and we should have a, a fair discussion about those levels. Now, look, I know we're moving state by state, and we're going to start to see this, but Aren't we all rooting for every state that opens early to do great? Do you really feel like everyone out there is rooting for every state that opens early, particularly if it's a red state? Do you think that all all the the liberal commentators and the Democrats, are they rooting for all these states to do really well, or do they want them to be a warning to other states? I, I wonder. I think you do have to ask the question. By the way, CNN's uh, Cooper here continues to go after this Las Vegas mayor for wanting to take a more open approach. Here's, here's how that went. Play 13. So I just want to put up Ooh, for our viewers. 
I just want to put up for our viewers. This is a, a restaurant. Anderson, you are tough. <laughs> no, I'm not We're talking. Back I'm just... to China. This isn't China. Yeah. This, this is, is Las a... Vegas, Nevada. Wow. Okay, that's really ignorant. This is a restaurant. And the that's yellow circle, say that's an ignorant, that, ignorant statement. That's, that's a restaurant. <laughs> and yes, it's in China, but there are human beings too. I, I just, I don't really understand. I, I don't understand what, I, I keep asking this. What is, what is the mainstream media? What do they think they're really accomplishing with a lot of the coverage? Look, some of it is they're just providing information, but keep in mind with the internet, how much of this do we really need from them? You know, we have all these different news organizations, so many of them. What are they? What value are they really adding? You have to ask, I mean, what, what does CNN bring you that MSNBC or ABC or any of these other news outlets or NPR doesn't? And the answer is really nothing. So that's why it's really opinion masquerading as, an, as objective news, which is why so many of the news stories that you do see end up having such a clear political angle to them. But... I, I would note that we are going to see how it works in these different states. The, the president has laid out guidance for them. And we're all hoping or should be hoping. I know you and I are. I wonder about some others that the states that open up the soonest are surprisingly uh, have surprisingly low levels of cases afterwards. And we can all start getting back. You know, don't we just all want our lives back? I, I really do wonder sometimes how many people on the left view, you, you know, if, if we did a. Um, you know, if we did a poll, how many people on the left view Trump's election and COVID-19 as things that must be dealt with simultaneously, right? To prevent Trump winning, that's, that's something that has to be factored into all of our COVID analysis. I wonder. You know where you get great news? And you can always go and see stories that are going to matter to you and also see our commentary and we tell you what we think. We tell you what angle we're coming from here. BuckSexton.com. It's a fantastic website, my friends, with more and more content being added every day. Go check it out. We'll have stories from today's show as well as news stories from all across the spectrum uh, online. And uh, no, no, uh, no fake news nonsense going on there. No, oh, we're also just objective. No, no, no. Uh, you, know what our, you know what our slant is at BuckSexton.com? America. We love America. That's right. Go check out the site, bookmark it today, and check in every morning. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Back by popular demand, we have Clay Travis in the house. He is the host of the Outkick the Coverage podcast. He is also a writer, uh, speaker, all-around thinker. You've probably seen the book, Republicans Buy Sneakers 2. He is the man. Thank you so much, sir. Good, good to have you back on the show. Hey, appreciate you having me, man. So let's talk about uh, COVID-19, if we can, for a minute first. Um, we have talked about this in the past, and you were willing to ask questions that got you, I'm sure, a lot of uh, negative attention from the consensus, which is that we lock down, we do what we're told, we don't ask questions. That's what I view as, as the problem here. Uh, where do you feel like things are now versus where we were then? What, what, what has surprised you? What, what in your mind have we learned or do we still need to learn as a country about dealing with this? Yeah, I think those are big questions. And to me, what we most need, uh, more so than anything else, is data, right? In order to make smart public policy decisions, you need the most accurate and the best data you can find anywhere. And in particular, you need to know infection rates, 
how common is this? What are the antibody rates? How many people have had it? And also contagion rates. How easily does this spread? Where does it spread? How does it spread? What's the most efficient way that this virus spreads? And then do whatever we can to try to dial that back in the weeks and months ahead. And so uh, to me, uh, I think the data still needs to get better because all of the forecasting and all of the models right now is predicated on input, right? I mean, you don't have to be an epidemiologist uh, or a genius in virology to know that the infection rate and uh, the contagion rate determine everything as it, as it pertains to where this virus is gonna go. So the models are only as good as the input data, which uh, is reliable that the models rely on themselves. And I think throughout uh, most of this outbreak so far, we've been relying on models that are not very accurate because the underlying data is not very accurate either. Do you feel like the state-by-state -state reopen plan is is the way to go at this point? And how are you, tell us, I mean, I know you're in Nashville, you're in Tennessee. Uh, how are things going in your city and in your state? Very well here in Tennessee, uh, certainly compared to many other places that are much harder hit. And yeah, I do. I think this is a triumph of federalism, Buck. Um, I mean, I think that the benefit of opening states as they see fit based on local mayor and governor and city council, even conversations that are going on, makes sense because that allows us to use the individual states as federalism laboratories to see whether or not uh, we are prepared as a nation to open back up. Now, personally, I tend to think smaller states opening first makes sense from a population perspective, simply because if they get it wrong, then the overall impact is not as draconian and severe as say if California gets it wrong or New York gets it wrong, obviously New York's in the middle of it, but a state like Tennessee with a population of around 7 million, uh, if we believe we're ready to go back uh, and, and start to open up and return to normal uh, activity, I think it makes a lot of sense. The data on the ground reflects that we should. Now, Texas is a big state, but Texas has had per capita the lowest of the big states uh, in terms of deaths, right? And so I think the governor down in Texas is making a good decision as well. I think, you know, this is boots on the ground analysis. We don't necessarily need a one size fits all policy because frankly, most places are not New York City. And on the sports side of things, I know that, you know, you, you cover general, general news, but also you're generally, you're, you're generally thought of, sorry, as a, uh, as a, a sports analyst, what, what happens now? What, what are the leagues you know, you're much more up to speed on this. And isn't there a draft that's happening? I mean, where are we with, with the world of professional sports? Because I think that people, you know, one of the one of the components, one of the reasons why everyone's always just saying Netflix, and we don't have any sports to watch right now. It does feel like there's this huge gap in American culture. And for a lot of folks, I know that's just a big, necessary and, and positive escape. You know, it's a, it's a place where they can go and have fun and think about other things. Uh, and I know that that's, that's a big part of, of what your audience is getting when they're hearing about sports all the time. Where are we with the leagues? I mean, are, are, are they kind of coming back? Are they going to try to do stuff without people in the stands? What can you tell us? Well, I think they're incredibly apprehensive because, as we talked about in your first question, the data sets that we have to rely upon right now are not particularly accurate. And so as you start to make decisions on behalf of sports leagues, I think there are several things that have to be considered. First of all, the PGA, the golf, is coming back on June 11th, uh, and NASCAR seems to be uh, targeting a May 24th return. Of course, those sports are unique because they're not team-based contact sports in the same way that, say, basketball or basket uh, basketball or football or, uh, or hockey would be, for instance, or even soccer. 
Uh, so every sport is going to be a little bit different in terms of its overall impact. Uh, but I believe as the infection rates continue to climb and we see European soccer leagues, for instance, the Bundesliga in Germany, start to come back, there are policies that can be put in place to allow these leagues to return. And remember, for Major League Baseball or the NBA or hockey or soccer probably as well, these athletes are going to require three, four weeks to get back into peak physical condition before they can return to actually playing their sports. I think we'll start to see a lot of that take place in terms of training camp style, spring training uh, for the sports as we come into May. And I would suspect by late June and into July, based on the trend lines that are out there about the coronavirus right now, uh, that it makes sense that they can maybe come back. And you asked a good question, like, how in the world does a guy who otherwise talks about sports end up talking about the coronavirus uh, as much as I have? This is the biggest story in the history of sports. The intersection of the coronavirus with sports is literally creating situations that have never occurred in the world of sports before. And I think the return of sports is in many ways a symbol and sign of the uh, of the resiliency of America and the world. When sports comes back for many people, it is a sign of normalcy. They can start to recognize that they aren't going to be living sheltered in place forever in the method that they are right now. Sports is a big part of that return to normalcy. How have we uh, seen the financial impact of this play out with the various leagues? You know, Harvard, which has a $40 billion endowment, which I'm guessing is is bigger than the uh, the cash pile that a lot of different sports leagues would be sitting on at any given time. Uh, you know, they took the money and they, now they're saying they're giving it back after Trump called them out at the press conference. But have there been any any particular uh, you know league fallouts from from just the financial freeze here? Are there are there worries that there'll be some teams that just you know can't pay their bills? I mean, I'm just wondering. I, I don't I don't know the economics of, of professional sports teams very well. Uh, Producer Mark probably knows them a lot better than I do. But is everyone pretty much planning on coming back as is as soon as there's the all clear signal, or is it a little bit like the we're not sure how we're going to do this because we've lost so much revenue? Well. Every sport's different, right? So uh, the NBA and the NHL got a substantial portion of their regular season complete. Major League Baseball has never been able to start. The NFL has been totally unimpacted so far. So every sport, you have to kind of dive into the particulars. The NBA is a good example. Players recently uh, were told they're going to get a 25% pay cut uh, in the near future. But, I mean, honestly, when you look at the business of sports, the most impacted people, and we don't talk about them enough, are the guy or girl who are walking around selling hot dogs and beer, you know, inside of the stadium, the people who are in charge of being ushers, uh, the people who sell parking around the stadiums, uh, all of the janitorial services that work inside of these stadiums. You know, the athletes and the owners are rich. Uh, the idea that they are going to suddenly fall off the face of the earth uh, because they miss a couple of paychecks is not true. But many of the people who work in the industry of sports overall to support this massive uh, entertainment product are living on the edge, and they are the ones who have been oftentimes the most impacted. You know, uh, the uh, the live sports, uh, whether they're going to return, uh, television is a huge component of overall sports revenue. So far, those payments continue. Uh, but the, the gate revenue for something like baseball that has 162 games, I think 40% of baseball's revenue is predicated on uh, people coming to the games, and that's where the salaries come from. And I think uh, a lot of people are going to end up losing a lot of money and already are 
uh, associated with the sports, even if they come back uh, for television. How successful have some of the leagues been, the, the more impacted leagues? You mentioned baseball um, and making sure that those hourly workers – are, are I saw what was it a player for the for the Pelicans I believe who and I know that's NBA yeah. but you know he he Zion Williamson yeah he was paying everyone's you know everyone at his stadium salary have there has there been more of that I mean look people think of these athletes and as you point out some of them aren't just a little bit rich they're like crazy rich uh, are there more stories yeah. like that out there have they been making sure that the people that are selling the T-shirts with Zion's name in them you know they they still can feed their families yeah I think a lot of athletes and owners have done a great job you know, reaching out. And certainly a story that got a lot of attention was Robert Kraft, the owner of the New England Patriots, sending a Patriots private team plane to China to try to get some of these uh, N95 masks in the midst of the uh, PPE uh, shortness. I think he brought back uh, over a million of those on a private jet. Um, But yeah, a lot of players and owners, I think, have done a good job. The question is, how long is this going to continue, right? I mean, I think that's the question that is out there in a big way. And we haven't even talked about it. But for colleges, you know, college athletic departments are predicated in many ways on having a football season. They already missed the NCAA tournament, which is a big money maker. But if the uh, if the college football season were not going to happen, many of these leagues, uh, you know, the uh, major leagues and also many colleges would be absolutely hammered from a uh, financial perspective. So I think in many ways, sports is a mirror for the larger society. I'm sure your radio show has been impacted like my radio show has been impacted like so many people who are listening to us right now regardless of what they do for a living their jobs have likely been impacted in a significant and uh, and profound way by this as well and i think this is one of the examples of you know sports sh- sort of holding up a mirror to society and uh, and referencing that ultimately they are a business as well and like many businesses that rely on having paid audiences that support their product they are suffering and uh, tell me about the potential of the leagues isolating the entire league in one city to play the rest of the season or the whole season with baseball. You think that might happen? Baseball's newest plan is actually to use Texas, Florida, and Arizona as three different distinct locations with domed stadiums that they could theoretically use to avoid rainouts. Their previous plan that had leaked was to be in the Phoenix area and all be located in the same city. I actually think the NBA if it comes back, may well end up in Las Vegas uh, where they have the ample hotel rooms and access to basketball courts where they could theoretically continue their season. The NHL is talking about using four different cities as well to finish its season. So I think what you're probably looking at is a, uh, a system that has three or four different cities with the exception of the NBA uh, where they can locate multiple franchises and be e- easily able to play multiple games Uh, and particularly get players back up into shape. And then I think the hope would be by July, uh, you know, as you move into the summer and hopefully there's a negative impact from warm weather on the spread of the coronavirus, that maybe you could at least return to the physical locations and start to allow these team planes to fly across the country, whether that means that you'd be able to have fans uh, present in in those months, maybe July and August, uh, in the hot uh, part of the summer, I think remains to be seen. And I think certainly... The fall is a challenging part here as you think about cold weather in November and December when the flu typically kicks up again. Will it happen uh, with this particular coronavirus or not is a good question. Before I let you go, Clay, uh, my producer, producer Mark, has said that the new Michael Jordan doc, we're all looking for new stuff to watch. I'm yeah. excited about The Last Kingdom coming back on Netflix, for example. But he's telling me i got to watch this ESPN Michael Jordan doc. I just wanted, wanted your take on it before we let you get back to everything you got going on. 
fabulous. Uh, six million, over six million people watched it. Most uh, largest audience for a sports documentary on cable of all time, nearly doubled the previous high. I think people are starved for sports content. I think they're starved for original content in general. Witness the success of the Tiger King uh, and Ozark shows like that on uh, on Netflix. Uh, but if you grew up in any way following the Michael Jordan era, it's a uh, spectacular look at the 1990s era dynasty Bulls. Uh, Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman, uh, names that are iconic and legendary. I've got three boys, 12, 9, and 5, and I have them watching it because obviously Jordan predated them. But, Buck, one of the crazy things about it is I don't feel like I'm that old of a guy. I just turned 41 this month. Um, but when I look around and realize that there are like 25-year-old guys now in my audience who are consuming my content every day that were too young to have ever watched a Michael Jordan Bulls game, it blows my mind because, uh, you know, he is uh, sort of the quintessence, uh, I think, of a sports figure for many people of my generation. And uh, to be able to uh, allow other people to experience that Jordan era through this documentary and for people like me to be able to go back in time and nostalgically re-remember it is a pretty fantastic way to spend your Sunday evening uh, in this uh, quarantine that we find ourselves in midst of right now. Is Jordan the greatest of all time? Oh, yeah. There's right. no doubt. I like how he, does. he doesn't even hesitate, players. folks. He's not he's not pandering to the like, LeBron fans. He's going right for it. No. Well, look, <laughs> Mike Trout is a better baseball player than Babe Ruth, right? I think if you put them both, if you reincarnated Babe Ruth and he was the, the, at his peak and you put him next to Mike Trout, who's probably the best player in Major League Baseball right now, Trout's a better player. But Babe Ruth is the legend. He defines baseball. Michael Jordan is the legend. I'm not sure who would win if they played a one-on-one game at their peaks. But I can tell you right now that Jordan is the Babe Ruth of basketball, much more so than LeBron is. Steph Curry's more influential uh, with kids today than, than LeBron is, frankly. All right, everybody. Clay Travis, always interesting. Thank you so much, Clay. Outkick the coverage is the podcast. And check out Republicans Buy Sneakers, too. I'm a Republican, and I buy sneakers, so it's true. Thanks, sir. <laughs> it's, a, it's a Jordan quote, after all. Appreciate it, Buck. Thank you. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. I mean, talk about Iran. You put out a message this morning making a rather big announcement for our military when it comes to Iranians, Iranian aggression. Are you going to change uh, formally rules of engagement for our U.S. military so that they can we'll cover engage? It. We'll cover it 100%. Uh, we don't want their gunboats surrounding our boats and traveling around our boats and uh, having a good time. We don't want them anywhere near our boats. And so you know the order I gave. I don't think I have to say it again, but I've given that order. Uh, under the Obama administration, it was taking place all the time. Under my administration, I gave this order early on, and nothing happened. They were very nice. There was no problem. But then I noticed yesterday they did that in a much lighter form, but they did that again. I said we're not going to we're not going to stand for it. So if they do that, that's putting our ships at danger and our great crews and sailors at danger in danger. I'm not going to let that happen, and we will. They'll shoot them out of the water. So the U.S. military does not have to change its rules of engagement in order to follow your. Well, that's the rules of engagement. That's a threat when they get that close to our boat. And they have guns. They have very substantial weapons on those boats, but we'll shoot them out of the water. This is in reference to President Trump's tweet. I've instructed the United States Navy to shoot down and destroy any and all Iranian gunboats if they harass our ships at sea. Commander in chief's not playing games these days. I think the Iranians might want to take notice. We, we are not. This country is not to be trifled with these days. That's for sure.
Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. A lot of those people are going to end up in this week's numbers when it comes tomorrow for unemployment. And that is simply because the Democrats wanted to play games one more time. It's what they did when we moved the CARES Act. They held that up another week. And now we have 22 million reasons they should have said yes a lot earlier. What was the reason for the Democrats' delay? Well, you won't hear because media is not going to ask them that question. Queen Pelosi had an agenda. And the mainstream media is not going to stand in the way of that. They're, they're not going to try to make Pelosi's life any more complicated with the uh, efforts to do more of a, a transformation of the country. Tens of millions of people losing their jobs. The consequences of this, we, we keep repeating it here on the show, and I know many of you are currently in lockdown at home dealing with the very, very hard realities of what this lockdown means economically, financially, and for your day-to-day mental health, for the prospects for you and your family's future. There are, you know, there's a huge divide that we are seeing between those who have savings and paychecks still coming in and those who have neither of those things. And people who have neither of those things feel very differently about the shutdown because they're really bearing the costs and consequences. I'm bored, I'm annoyed, and I'm uh, not, you know, I think that this is unnecessary. But yeah, I'm, I'm lucky. And I wake up every morning knowing that I'm lucky that I have not yet you know, lost my job or lost my, my employment because of this. And that's one of the reasons why I make such an effort to reach out, not just read about, but also talk to people who have lost their jobs, to understand what's going on in the rest of the country and advocate for those people because they need a voice in all of this. The voice that we've been dominated by for the last six weeks is that of the, the shrill, panic, fear-mongering lockdown consensus and if you try to say anything about the economy you want grandma to die for your 401k and all this other stuff and that's not fair it's not it's not honest it's not reality now the un now i don't i'm somebody that questions projections across the board as you know i don't think that most human beings can predict the future even experts can't predict the future if they could we'd all be in much better shape wouldn't we things would be much better off But the U.N. is saying, and I I mentioned this in the show yesterday, I meant to get to it, that there are um, that there is the prospect of famine around the world, that millions of people might starve, including starving to death as a result of the global economic recession. That is, yes, in part from just the virus hitting us, but also the shutdowns have made the shutdowns. There's no question have made the economies much worse, much worse. We know this. So there's a there are costs to this that are longer term there are costs associated with these decisions that we will not see for some time but they could be truly horrific but they're not no one wants to focus on those right now and the the shutdown chorus oh no shut it down shut it all down and until the smart people tell us not to well when's that going to be we're going to face a resurgence of this in the fall aren't we Oh, and then it might be worse. It might coincide with a bad influenza season, too. I mean, it could be even worse. This is what we know. So we can either learn to move forward as a society, protect people as best we can and live through this as a society, or we can continue living in this delusion that the lockdown can go as long as it has to go. Look, I know Trump has said state by state, which is the right move. And I, I think we I think we are as a country moving in the right direction. But there are definitely some some holdouts right now. 
Um, and there's a there's a, a stubbornness that is not just rooted in the fear. And it's a fear for good reason. I understand this virus is very real. It's killing a lot of people and it's it is scary. But there's also a slowdown of this and an exaggeration of the need for that, uh, the slowed reopening. That's that's obviously political. I mentioned um, also yesterday. Sorry, there's so many stories. There's actually so much going on in all of this that I, I feel like I never get to tell you everything I want to on, on any given day. Um, but here's here's the the uh, producer Mark. Did I talk about the earliest case yesterday on the show or did I skip it? I, I, I'm I now believe you skipped that. I skipped it. Thank you. Okay, so here's here's what happened. California did some testing on this one and they, they looked at an autopsy. And what we had believed was that in California specifically, the first case of COVID-19 that resulted in death was February 28th or 29th. Uh, very, very end of the month. We also know that the timeline of death for this uh, for this disease tends to be two to three weeks, generally speaking, from infection. For someone who does die from this, it takes two to three weeks for them to die in most cases. So now they found, because they did an autopsy and, and tissue samples, they found that there was someone in California who died on the 6th of February. So it's a, it's a, a whole, basically a whole month earlier, which means that person was likely infected at least two to three weeks before that, which brings us to a case in California in mid-January much earlier than was thought. And what are, what's the likelihood? You have to ask this, because this is not a person from Wuhan or this was not someone that had the direct travel connection to the outbreak of the virus in China. What's the likelihood that this was the first person or among the first people in California to get this disease? Well, given that we know that the fatality rate is at least less than 1% or 1% or less, we can say, it's very probable, almost certain, that there were other people, in fact, likely many other people infected before this individual became infected in California. So how far back does it go? The answer is nobody knows, but it does bring us to, at a minimum, at a minimum now with an established scientific basis, you're looking at the first case in California uh, a, a couple of weeks into into January. So we'd say, let's say around January 15th or so. Now, it's not it's not exact, but that's so. So by mid January, this thing was already in California. This disease was already in California. And I think we're going to find out that it was even earlier in New York than was that was previously anticipated, too. So this this does affect our perception of how many people have already been exposed to this. You know, you have all these ser uh, serology studies that are showing 5, 10, 15, sometimes even 20 or 25 percent of a random sampling in an area have already developed antibodies to this disease. In New York, we just told you today they're saying the early statistical analysis of, ser of the antibody testing they're doing in New York, where I am, is that close to 2 million people, 1.7, 1.8 million, depends on the math. But, you know, close to 2 million people have likely been exposed to this already. So what does that tell us about the rest of the country? And what does that tell us about how many people have been exposed to this and what the fatality rate really is like? This has to do with fatality rate. It also has to do with how quickly many of us can go back to work. So much weeks earlier than was previously known, there were cases in California. And I have a feeling we're going to find out that there because remember, there's also the very real possibility that people were dying of this in the middle of January and it was thought to be flu or they died at home.
And nobody knew, especially if it was an older person and, you know, it might have been coded as flu. It could have been hiding among the flu population. And that's I've been told that by doctors. That's 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 an easily uh, that's an easy scenario to have happened. Not provable. It's theoretical. But now we're getting into, okay. so was it late, late, uh, late December, early January that this thing was was already bouncing around some parts of the United States that are international travel hubs? I think the answer is probably yes, but we can't go that far back yet. We don't know. But the data is pushing is pushing us to see that there are a lot more infections with this than previously known. And I mean, I am very curious to get a serology test done myself. I know that they, they think that there's a large percentage of asymptomatic cases at the maximum spread of this disease. I was on the subway constantly for long periods of time and also going to very crowded grocery stores and dealing with a lot of people all the time so statistically my chance of being exposed to this is already one in five in new york but i'm also a young person who's going on the subway all the time and very active and, and going out and about i shouldn't say young but you know youngish uh going out and about so we'll all see we'll all see what our what our exposure was in the, in this city but it's it's worth remembering that there's a lot of information that we still need before we can even make sound decisions about what we what we should be doing going forward, but also to be able to assess what we've done up to this point, because the economic devastation that we are seeing. I mean, I'm getting texts from friends of mine who work on Wall Street who are saying, you know, their chief economists are like, we don't know how this is going to go. No one knows what's really going to happen here. And was it necessary to put us in that in that position economically? The virus is here. The virus you know, the, the, we, we don't have a treatment for it. We don't have the, the well, I should say, we don't have the cure for it. Um, that's just an unfortunate reality of our existence right now. But did we have to, did we have to tank the economy and deal with all the after effects of it, even assuming we get it up and running in the next few weeks, which might be very uh, overly optimistic? Questions we've got to ask. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Something that that is concerning to me because Biden has committed to a woman as vice president, but has stopped short of committing to a woman of color. How important is it, do you think, for Biden to make that commitment? And do you think that not choosing a, a woman of color, a black woman, actually, is a slap in the face to the black female voters who are credited with really reviving his candidacy? I look at, I think... Vice President Biden is going to make a smart choice, and I appreciate the fact that he has lifted up women as being a necessary partner in this. I would share your concern about not picking a woman of color, because women of color, particularly black women, are the strongest part of the Democratic Party, the most loyal. But that loyalty isn't simply how we vote, it's how we work. And if we want to signal that that work will continue, that we're going to reach not just to certain segments of our community, but to the entire country, then we need a ticket that reflects the diversity of America. I wonder if Stacey Abrams, who still thinks she won the Georgia gubernatorial race without any evidence that that actually happened, but and the media lets her get away with it all the time, that she won. She still walks around saying that she won. Didn't win, but still says she won, and that's considered okay. But Stacey Abrams as a VP pick for Biden. If he doesn't pick a, a woman of color, the left is going to have a problem with him. We know this. The left is going to. This is this is the signal that we're being given. You know, he better. 
And who does Stacey, who does Stacey Abrams have in mind for that position of vice president in the Biden administration? Hmm. Stacey Abrams. You could also have Kamala Harris, a female minority who ran for the presidency. Didn't do very well, but at least was in the was in the race. Stacey Abrams never never decided to actually run for president in, in any way. And, and now we're hearing that she might be the vice president. Well, we'll see what good old Joe Biden decides to do from down in the basement. I'm still in, in a state of, of some degree of amazement here that uh, this is who the Democrats have put forward. But as we see, it, it doesn't. And this is per, this is perhaps the part of this that, that I should have um, I, I should have assumed all along. Which is that it doesn't matter. The Democrats are just they want to put someone who will be a vessel for the Democrat Party's power for it. It doesn't matter who it is. They're going to tell you that that person's amazing and brilliant and not Trump. And that's what they're going to do with Biden, even though more honest, more honest voices in the Democratic Party earlier on were willing to say that Joe Biden was not up for this. And he's clearly not up for this. And it's a shame because we are getting a lesson, aren't we, in how important good leadership is right now and what bad leadership can mean. We're seeing it at the state level. We're seeing it at the federal level. Bad choices have real consequences. So now they want to foist upon us Joe Biden, a man who has no history of making good decisions and a history of making plenty of bad decisions. But this is what we're told. Meaning Joe Biden's been wrong on every major foreign policy issue. I mean, Joe Biden, uh, you know, you look back at and all the plagiarism stuff and all. I mean, it's just just bad. It's just bad. But they're going to go forward with it. And the left is also seeing the opportunity here. This will be a more of a focus of the show tomorrow. So think of it as a bit of a preview. But uh, Miss Ocasio-Cortez, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez here of uh, Queens, New York, is saying this about when, they, when the economy reopens. This was also telling. Play clip three. There's a lot that we could be doing right now. But ultimately, the, I think when we talk about this idea of reopening society, you know, only in America... Does the president, when the president tweets about liberation, does he mean go back to work? When we, you know, have this discussion about going going back or reopening, I think a lot of people should just say, no, we're not going back to that. We're not going back to working 70-hour weeks just so that we could put food on the table and not even feel any sort of semblance of security in our lives. So now we're not going to go back to our jobs? That's the answer? Now we're not going to, to continue to work and make money for ourselves? I also always want to see these, these stories you hear about, about the, the working a 70-hour work week and not being able to put food on the table. I'm not saying it's not possible, but that's, that's a really long work week. And if you're working for minimum wage, even at minimum wage, working 70 hours a week, well, anyway. Um, analysis that we'll have to do another time. But don't go back to your job, she said. Don't, don't go back to your job because uh, your job is not good enough. The one that you left, the one that you were showing up to every day and that the government has now shut down for you, it's not good enough. You deserve more. This is why I'm telling you the, the plan, and they, they seized the moment here. The Democrats knew it. People are getting paid more to not work than they are to work. They're going to get used to that. A lot of people are going to get used to this. And they're going to be told, well, hold on a second. Or they're going to think to themselves, why should I why should I go back to that job? If the government could just pay me like this and things are fine, why can't I have a 15 or $20 minimum wage when I go back? The government could just insure it. 
Does anyone have a good answer for that? I mean, we know it's inflation and the government's pocketbook is not endless. And in fact, it's our money that the government's giving back to us. I, we know the. But what do you think the political answer is going to be? Remember, minimum wage does not work the way it is intended, but it is still very popular. It's a very popular concept. What are we going to say when you have a whole political movement that there should be a $20 national minimum wage? Oh, it's going to result in job losses and there's going to be people that have less hours and well, they'll say, well, then we'll mandate more hours and the government can back. And, oh, companies, companies can't afford to pay that. You know what they're going to say? Federal government should whatever look at their balance sheet. And if they can't make enough with that as the, you know, the, the shortfall should come from a check from the Treasury. I know that sounds that sounds like, oh, come on, Buck, they'll never do that. Really? We're spending trillions of dollars like it's candy right now. And we are, in fact, under the current rule that we, which the Republicans went along with and the Democrats. We are paying people more to not work in many cases than they would get paid if they went back to their jobs. And for a long time, for a period of months. This is why restaurant owners are saying I can't get my staff to come back. My staff's deal right now to stay home is too good. So even if I could reopen, I'm not going to be able to reopen. You've had lots of restaurateurs coming out and saying that. I mean, the service industry in particular has just been wiped out right now by the lockdown. But this is changing our perception of what the state's role is in our lives, but also what's possible from the state. Universal basic income, the Andrew Yang idea. And I think Yang might end up running for the mayor of New York. I think if he does, he'll win. He's got that national recognition, and he's a likable guy. He is a likable guy, um, and he's a, he's smart. I mean, he's you know he's intellectually very capable. Um, if he were to run in New York, I think he, I think he's going to win. But his idea is universal basic income. If the government can pay everyone to stay home for a couple of months, why can't the government pay some people to stay home uh, all the time? You know, oh, you can't work anymore. We're just going to get what? What was your salary? We'll just give you that salary. You th these ideas might sound radical right now. Think of the moment that we're in economically, politically, psychologically as a country. You don't think that AOC and the left and the socialists see this as the biggest opportunity they've ever had. Look what they did in 2008. This is that on steroids. Get ready for it. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. It is roll call time. Before we do that, though, please do make sure you check in on BuckSexton.com. We will be putting up new videos for our long-form interviews there. We've been doing with great guests. We've got news stories getting posted all the time. We've got a, a team making sure that site is updated and a, a source for news stuff from this show. We're going to be posting a lot there. I'm hoping, Producer Mark, how hard do you think it would really be? And I'm springing this on him, guys, on air, so... Oh, no. Get ready for it. How, how I know, I know. How hard would it be, though, for us to start? I mean, if I just... Couldn't I just buy a whole bunch of T-shirts and we could just start selling some T-shirts to people on the site? How hard could that really be? I mean, there's there's websites that can do it for us and make it a lot easier. No, but we have to do it through our website because our website's no, no, cool no. no. I un I understand, but like right. we can partner with another website like other people do, okay, and they'll well, handle we... the manuf manufacturing. Well, producer Mark, just in yeah. case you feel like you don't have enough to do these days, yeah, I'll get right um, on that, Buck. Let's let's give let's give it some thought. People are asking for gear, okay? We've said people, we, we want to get gear going, but we, we have to do it the right way. That's true. We want people want gear. Um, and we also want a voicemail inbox, which I, we have had some movement on that this week. Yes. Not a lot, but some. A little bit. Tiny bit. We've got to figure that one out too. 
Maybe we could get like a maybe our, our sponsor, Pure Talk USA, could help us out with that. Like set up a Pure Talk USA voicemail box. Wouldn't that be good? I didn't realize we were having a Buck Sexton show meeting on the air today. I'm just putting out some ideas because Team Buck, you know, they weigh in and they like to know what's going on. They like to know behind the scenes. I had I had a, I have one of my one of my uh, OSS DMing me last night saying, "Where's the Malta podcast?" I'm like, "Yep, ah, yeah, you're well, right." See, I'm that's a, little, a good thing. Please bother little, Buck about the podcast. I'm a little behind, a little bit, a, a little? little bit. And so I said, I said, "All right, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it." But I think you've been saying you're going to give a Malta podcast next week since we started the quarantine. That's probably true, but I did get a DM last night that reminded me, okay, I, I owe the team a multi-podcast, so that's coming. I hope they like it. It's just going to be me sitting, drinking uh, drinking Mezcal, talking about this one moment in history that I think is really cool. So we'll see if people like it. You know, If, if they don't, they don't have, you know, hey, we'll see. We'll figure out a new one. But everyone loves the long-form videos so far, so those will be up on BuckSexton.com. And the podcasts. And, and the podcasts, which are also going to be up on BuckSexton.com. So, and, and this is where I ask you folks, everyone's home these days pretty much. I know there's essential workers and such, but we're, we're all stuck home more than we usually are. So it's a great time to tell people, you know, hey, listen to this guy, listen to this show, Buck Sexton show. And uh, if you get more family members to listen, preferably on even more devices, that's great. And the podcast is really easy to find and listen to. And BuckSexton.com, you can find it there. So we're, that's going to be the one-stop shop and we will actually have a shop there at some point where you can buy things. The one-stop shop for all content. So I'm really hoping that, especially for somebody that's been listening to this show for a long time and been part of our part of our team, uh, you know, add it to your bookmarks and just check in on BuckSexton.com because we got stuff going up there all the time. All right, Nate. Hey, Buck, I listen to your podcast daily. I can't imagine what you're going through. I live in the small town of Rainer, Oregon, as a machinist. And we haven't seen any action on this virus. I just wanted you to know that I pray for you and yours daily as I listen to you and the stress in your voice that cannot be hidden. Shield time, my friend. I thank you for your input and your honest interpretation of events and issues. P.S. Your burgers look killer and great job using the cast iron, bro. Take care, my friend. Be safe. Well, Nate, I'm glad you and yours are safe and sound. And I appreciate your your uh, support for me here in the city and producer Mark. You know, he's just across the river in, in New Jersey. So we are in the midst of all this. Um I, I'm hoping that my voice doesn't sound too stressed out. It also may just be that on these days I'm doing five hours of radio a day. So if my voice sounds like it's giving a little bit, it could be stress. It also could just be that my voice box is kind of falling apart. But I've got to do a lot of content. There's a lot to talk about, a lot to do. And uh, as, for, as far as burgers, for those who didn't see, I post uh, sometimes on Instagram, which you should all please follow me, Buck Sexton on Instagram. If nothing else, that's where you get the best Tallulah content. I post my favorite Tallulah photos and videos there. So that always cheers everybody up. Also do a little bit of cooking stuff there and post some hot takes from the show, et cetera, et cetera. So Buck Sexton on the Instagram. Man, we are multi-platform. Producer Mark, I have a question for you, though. And this one you'll be able to sure. answer without, without the frustration of the recognition that I'm having a, a producer meeting on air. Um, should we do TikTok? Should it's a Chinese spying program, probably. 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 We're not sure yeah, yet, I mean. but... Should we do TikTok? I mean, you have to be funny to do TikTok. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's like that. The range is hot today, apparently. Okay. Well, theoretically, if we had good content for TikTok, is that where the cool kids are? I think so. I'm not a cool kid, so I'm not on TikTok. I'll see a couple funny videos, like, like a, that friend share or something, but I'm not like actively on it. I don't have an account. Uh, okay. Well, I'll have to ask the Snow Princess, because she's cool. She's young. She's a little older than you, but close. Yeah, Snow Princess sounds a lot hipper than, uh, than me and you. She's a hip lady. Definitely hipper than me. Um, Mark writes in, Hey, buddy, keep, talk, uh, keep taking the fight to those commie libs. <laughs> I love 
I love messages that start out like that. I was having a socially distanced driveway beer with my neighbor yesterday. He works for a mid-sized alcohol distributor in North Carolina, and he was saying that they've had to dump over 51,000 gallons, that is not a typo, of undelivered beer for the month of March because restaurants and bars are not open to take delivery. The beer makers need the kegs back, so he's dumping the beer to save on shipping costs. That represented over 600000 in lost revenue. My jaw hit the ground, to say the least. Just another ramification of these draconian lockdowns that I hadn't even considered. Yeah, Mark, there's a lot of food that's going to waste, a lot of food spoilage problems, and farmers having to plow food under in their fields. And, uh, you know, it's, it's rough right now. It's a, a tough situation. I mean, I do feel like, you know, the, there's, the, the good news is that our food supply is so far still very, very robust and uninterrupted. Um, perhaps, and pardon the aside here, but the bad news is that I think I'm doing my own, my own part to keep the ice cream business afloat these days. I don't know what it is, but when you're in quarantine, having a little bit of ice cream at night before you go to bed, it just feels like, you know, it feels like I, you know, I earned this. I socially distanced today. Let me have some ice cream. What do you think, Mark? Yeah, I agree with you. If I don't eat like crap, I'm going to go crazy. That's kind of where I am. I'm just like, look, man, I don't know what else to do, but uh, sweet treats are kind of keeping me going these days. Maybe it's stress eating. I don't know. But I, I did. I've missed one day, but my 100 push-up challenge is still going strong. So there's that, which uh, it's, a, it's a nice reminder to the first few days you do it. It feels like someone's lighting your chest on fire afterwards. And that's a that's a helpful reminder that uh, quarantine is not good for it's great for it's not even dad bod. It's whatever the level way beyond dad bod becomes, you know, um, big boned, you know, it's, it's tough for us out here. We we're, we're putting on It's certainly in New York. We're putting on the LBs. Some of you have yards, you have space. What am I going to do? I'm going to do calisthenics, uh, in the 400 square feet I've got here in my living room. I don't think so. I, um, I agree there. It's been a week. I realize now since I've been outside. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Can you go for a walk? I could. I'm just being lazy. I work out indoors. Just haven't yeah. gone for a walk. Okay. Um, Richard Buck, happy happy Hoosier hellos. The story about people not going back to work till August has merit. I make about 50K a year in a middle management position at a factory gig. We've been furloughed for a month now collecting unemployment. North Carolina pays 350 a week, and with the 600 from the feds, my take-home pay after taxes is 800 a week. That's more than I usually take home. Now, that's after retirement, health insurance, etc. But still, what incentive would someone have to go back to work if they get paid to stay home? I'm daddy daycare in the midterm, which is fun, but I really want to go back to work. 18-month-olds are hilarious. Hopefully, we'll get back to work on May 4th, but might be off later. We'll see. Stay safe and keep your sanitized shield high. Yeah, shields high, masks on. Maybe that should be the new rallying cry. Uh, as for, oh, 18 months old, uh, huh? That's, uh, Tallulah is an 11 year old, but she acts like an 18 month old and that she throws little tantrums. She doesn't like her food. She's also a canine, not a human being. So I feel like there's less, a little less stress as a result of that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm sure having, having a young one in the house has got to keep you really, really active, really a lot of stuff going on. Producer Mark, have you ever been in charge of a uh, small human for a long period of time? No, nobody would ever give me that responsibility. Yeah, this is the longest I've ever had real responsibility for a dog. And I will say it's, it's it reminds me of uh, an extended version of didn't they used to 
in home ec class, didn't people have to, you took like a, an egg or a watermelon home and had to care for it or something like it was a baby, or you took like a, a plastic baby home and just, it was supposed to, I feel like I remember this from shows in the, in shows in the nineties about the seventies, that this is something that people used to do, you know, in high school, they'd send you home. You have to take care of a baby or, or an actual like egg. No. Am I yeah. Crazy? I, I remember that being in TV shows. I never actually did it. Yeah. I never actually did it either, but this is, an extended version of that. I got a little Tallulah here, as I like to call her, and she's uh, she's a handful. Michael, on Monday, an old friend posted that he'd been sick for four days and was going to the hospital for COVID-19. Oh, man. I'm sorry to hear that, Michael. That night, I was told uh, he was in an ICU on a ventilator. Yesterday, he passed away. Later that afternoon, his family announced the doctor said he didn't have COVID-19. He died from heart problems. I have a niece who's a registered nurse who told me a similar story of a patient who stayed home with COVID symptoms. Finally, she went to the hospital and died of a heart condition. I wondered if my friend would be here if he'd gone in when he was first sick and not assume it was COVID. Yeah, Michael, I think, uh, first of all, I'm very sorry for your loss. And I think that a lot of people uh, are looking at this now and trying to figure out, you know, what the, um, uh, what the best decision making is here that one can have when you see certain symptoms and, you know, we're all just thinking about COVID, but all the other health problems are still out there, right? You know, heart disease still out there, lung cancer still out there, all kinds of cancers. There's a lot of lot of things that we need to be thinking about. Um, but I'm very sorry. For, I'm very sorry to hear about your loss. I just got a, a text message from a friend this morning who I've known for 25 years, and she has a uh, a parent who is in. She just told me I hadn't heard about it before. And uh, she has a parent uh, who's a guy, you know, her dad, someone I've known for that whole 25 year period. I've spent many, many times at their house and um, he uh, he is on week three on a ventilator. It's uh, we're praying for him. We're hoping he pulls through. But more and more people I'm hearing from uh, that I, you know, that I know have family members that are that are hit by this here in New York. And it's just it's tough. It's a very, very difficult, very emotionally charged and uh and just tragic and sad situation so yep i i know people too it's uh, that's all i can say about it is we're, all, we're praying for everybody and hoping we all pull through alex with an update from georgia at the beginning of the shutdown i got seven days off with pay but i work for a defense contractor and were deemed essential to national security so we went back to work all the right-leaning people were fine with it and understood. All the Dems I work with complained and said we should be home getting paid. I don't understand their mindset. I'm proud to be essential to national security, and it beats being unemployed. You and Mark stay safe. Well, what you're really telling me here, Alex, is a, is a continuation or, or just you know another example of what I've been talking about, which is somehow this has become a partisan, a very partisan issue about when to lock down or not and what drugs work and don't. And, huh. Why? That shouldn't be the case. And yet it is. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. All right. Nathan is up next here. Dear Buck, love the show. Dear Nathan, the show loves you. I'm a trucker and there's no issue out here with food. Truck stop restaurants are carry out only and we eat in our trucks. My co-driver took time off for his health, but most of us are just happy to be working. The air horn is what kids want you to honk. Oh, there we go. See, I, I knew there was something. There was some 
specific way to describe it. Trucks also have a city horn that's smaller, more like a car. Yeah, no, the air horns, the one that's like, bah, bah, you know, I remember as a kid driving family trips on the highway. That was awesome. You know, the trucker. Bruce and Mark, you ever told the trucker to pull the air horn? When you're like eight years old, that's that's like a highlight of life. Yeah, of course. Of course. And when you're yeah. on the school bus. Oh, yeah. Oh, the school done. bus, you and all your friends. Dude, there's nothing. <laughs> you get you get like 50 kids like, pull the air horn, pull the air horn. The trucker's like, yeah, woo, pulls it. So, sounds cooler than that, though, as we all know. That sounded a little bit like a, like a duck that's wounded, but it was the closest I could come up with on the fly. Taylor. Hey, Buck, I try to listen to you as much as I can on iHeartRadio. I actually listened all the way to the end for Wednesday, yesterday. The reason Los Angeles is such an outlier from the other Democrat-run cities is that SoCal residents are attached to their cars. I used to commute into Glendale Burbank every year, every day for eight years, and the only good mass transit is the Metrolink trains, which almost parallel the 10 and 210 freeways. L.A. is trying to build out more rail line, but it's slow. LAX is the only airport that I know of that didn't have a train running through. Stay safe and shields high. Yeah, Taylor, I do think that the uh, I do think that the difference uh, in the mass transportation system and everyone's kind of known this all along. Right. It makes sense. It's not it's not a higher order analysis to figure out that if you got a lot of people every day packed into a small a small area, which all trains are going to be. And you have a lot of people coming on and coming off. You're going to be at, at a real, a really elevated risk for major spread of that disease. It's just and that's just common sense. And I've been telling family members about this and friends from the very beginning that my um, my sense of this is that we're going to find out that there was a, a big role of, of mass transit and that that's what's um, you know, that was a, a, a part of this. So and we've started to see there's still some people that are. Look, we're figuring out how much that's true and, and debating it, but it's still going on. Um, Aaron, hey, big fan of the show. This is on Instagram, by the way. You can send me direct messages on Instagram, too. Just Buck Sexton, and then send me a DM. Keep it clean, people. I'm a 16-year-old youth entrepreneur. Um, I'm very politically involved. I would love to join you on your podcast as a guest. Aaron, I will pass this to producer Mark, and he will make the determination about how we can get you on the air. Okay, thank you so much for writing in. It's great to have a 16-year-old entrepreneur listening to the show. Um, let's see here. Uh, Cooper, Buck, check out the link for a laugh. It's a YouTube clip from Always Sunny in Philadelphia where they prove the experts are always wrong sometimes. Just thought about it with the current trend of the experts being wrong all the time. Shields high. Well, Cooper, thank you so much. For writing in, I do appreciate it. So uh, thank you. And then we have, let's see here. This is from Cat. Hey, Buck, leftist governor of Hawaii tightened regulations and completely closed beaches and said you can fish with a family member but 20 feet apart, even though Hawaii is green according to the map used for reopening. So instead of loosening up a state with 37% unemployment, he tightened the strings. Well, Cap, uh, it's... People are making bad decisions all the time. And I think that you're going to see a lot of that with some of these Democrat governors of these states, especially because of the political lens that all this is going through now. Team, please do check out BuckSexton.com and tell somebody to download the podcast who's new. Uh, we'll have more for you tomorrow. I'm working on that Malta podcast. Until then, stay safe. Wash those hands. Shields high.